what is a joy to be back together with you, and again, Merry Christmas. I know this morning, I'm sure, uh, it was a sweet time waking up, anticipating coming uh, to worship together with God's people. I, uh, I love this particular time when Christmas falls on a Sunday. Rarely happens, but when it does, the whole body being able to get together and to worship and um, it's exciting for me, particularly, I would think of no better place than to be with God's people, reflecting and rejoicing in the truth of God's Word. And so this morning, I want to take your attention and draw it to Matthew's Gospel. We can pick up on what we were looking at last night when we look at Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1. And this morning, we'll look at the virgin birth. I was thinking about law cases and arguments with all that's going on right now, you have the January 6th uh, thing that the, the Congress is getting together with a trial, gathering information. I was thinking about what it would take to have a high-profile court case. And the matter of time it takes to establish details, to go out and say what are the facts, and to examine those facts to determine what is certain or what's, what's not. What you end up finding is that the bigger the case, the more significant the case, the longer it takes to gather all of that information and to validate whether something is true or not. I love this account here in Matthew's Gospel because Matthew takes the time to lay out the particular details to establish the legal facts, and he lays out a case. His whole Gospel is a defense of the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the beginning verses to the end, it is the defense that the one who has been anticipated from long ago, from the time of Adam and Eve even, from the time of Abraham on, the promise of the Messiah has been announced, and Matthew says he has come, he has arrived. And he lays out the case here. And every detail is significant, every detail is important, because with the details establishes the credibility of the message. And with this, he comes in verses 18 through 25, our text this morning, Matthew lays out that marvelous and miraculous detail of the conception and birth of Christ and his entrance into this world. The question for everyone is, do you believe in the virgin birth? Is it a story that is taken literally, or is it like fables? Is it just a fairy tale? Some have equated the story of the virgin birth to the story of Santa Claus, the story of the Easter Bunny, the story of a stark, a stork who delivers babies. It's just a fanciful story that some believe and tell their children. But is it really important to hold to the virgin birth? In 2007, Barna Group went and asked Americans, do they believe in the virgin birth? And the title of that article was entitled this, Americans Love Good Fiction. In the midst of that article, they had found at least 75% of American adults had believed in the virgin birth. So there was still some hope. 
By 2013, that number had dropped to 73%. What was striking in that number is that 66% of young people actually believed in the virgin birth and the resurrection. Older generations upheld it, the younger generations becoming less and less confident in these details. So the story is now becoming just that, a story, a fable, some detail that we tell one another at the holiday times that uh, keeps us together, coming together, but not really important. So skepticism fills the hearts of man, and man begins to doubt the importance of these particular details. And this morning, I want to go back to Matthew's account and show you why the virgin birth is not only necessary, it's crucial, but it is at the heart of the Christian faith and then even show you the details of why. It's not a surprise that the human heart is filled with skepticism and wants to discredit the message of God when in the Old Testament or even New Testament era, in fact, even later here in, uh, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 3, in talking about Jesus, well, yeah, in talking about Jesus, anyway, if you turn over to Matthew 10, let me just show you this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 3. Notice in this the typical way in which one would identify a, a, a man. Matthew 10, 3 says, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, and then notice, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. He's naming off the disciples here, but he refers to James. We want to identify who this James is. This is James, the son of Alphaeus. You, you identified in the time of Jesus a man by who his father was. James, the son of Alphaeus. But turn over to Mark's account in Mark chapter 6. And Notice what they say about Jesus. When Jesus had come back to his hometown, and he was entering into his hometown, his disciples came with him. He came into the synagogues, and he started teaching in the synagogues, and, and they were amazed and astonished by that. Verse 2, they says, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him in such miracles as these performed by his hands? How did this man get to this place where he's teaching these things? And then notice the derision they give in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? Now, this is the guy who made furniture. This is the guy who built tables for us and chairs. Isn't that, this the carpenter? And then notice, the son of Mary. They should have said the son of Joseph and Mary or at least the son of Joseph. This was a derision here to say he is the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. Meaning this at this point they were deriding the son of God. He is either the child, an illegitimate child of Mary's. Likely, that's what they're saying here. He's illegitimate. This, where did he get these things? This illegitimate child. Where did he get this knowledge, this wisdom, this truth? How is he teaching these kinds of things? The point is that there has always been a derision aimed at the Lord Jesus Christ. 
an attempt to discredit him, attempt to prove that he is not the Son of God, an attempt to say that he isn't who he claims to be and who his disciples claim to be. Don't really have to believe the message, shouldn't even engage in it. There's always been this era of skepticism hovering over the Lord Jesus Christ. You can turn back to Matthew chapter 1. It's not, there were, throughout history, there have been various debates about Christ and who he is. Churches for nearly 2,000 years always lived under the hostility where the godless have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and what the Bible says about him. They've rejected him. In fact, some have believed that Mary had an inappropriate relationship with a Roman soldier. This was the, one of the early heresies that was taught and rumors spread around by the Jews during that time is that Mary had a relationship with a Roman soldier and that's how Jesus entered into this world. In fact, Origen, uh, in his works, in his early works called Contra Celsum, refutes the early Jer- Jewish belief that Mary had this relationship with a Roman soldier by the name of Panthera. And the belief was that that was taught by the rabbis during this time, and this is the first 160 years of uh, human history from A.D. 160. A man by the name of Celsus, the Platonist, a Platonist is a, a man who has embraced the philosophies of Plato. He was teaching this, this idea that Mary was actually basically a harlot who was running around and having an inappropriate relationship. And it was Origen going in and defending the truth of Jesus' virgin birth. He was defending against this heresy. I wouldn't even be surprised if, if down the road in our lifetime this repeats as a heresy, as something that comes up to try to discredit Christ. Because time and time again, Godless people seek to oppose who Jesus Christ is. I mean, we would rather relegate him as a story, a fable, or one who's discredited. We don't want to see him for what the Bible declares him to be, the very Son of God. But must we view him as the Son of God? Must we see him as the, has been taught by the church and has been taught in the Scriptures? And I would say emphatically, yes. Because that's exactly what where Matthew draws our attention to in this text here. He defends for us the virgin birth. And he defends it for us and gives us uh, some details that uh, help us have the confidence that not only must we declare this, but it is something that we believe because it establishes our faith and it establishes even the importance of the Christmas season and establishes for us the very our very identity. Notice here, as Matthew starts, he gives us no room to believe anything other than that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary as a result of God's work. No other room as he lays this out and he gives this proof and he just states it plainly. There is, in Matthew's account here, there is no other man like the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one alone who can fulfill the the place of the Messiah than the Lord Jesus Christ, and Matthew unfolds it. And what's rather interesting, it's just in eight short verses he lays out the details. Eight verses, there's no elaboration, 
no opportunity where he goes into extra details. I mean, in basically in this case, from the conception to the birth of Christ, you have nine months and eight days covered in this time period, and Matthew gives, covers it all in eight verses. There's a lot of details that happen in nine months and eight days in regards to one's life, and Matthew covers none of those details. He just goes to the essential, important truths for us. I mean, there are a lot of questions I'd have coming into this. All right, if angel saw, if Mary saw the angel, they talked to him, what did the angel look like? Did you touch him? Did you interact with him in any way? I mean, there are all kinds of details and questions that would come on the human mind that would want to be answered, none of which were important in Matthew's account. It was important. It's what took place here. And he unfolds it. So Matthew gives us in great brevity the account of the birth or the conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of which is moving to this very point to prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah the anticipated Messiah, to prove that Christ alone fulfills everything that the Jews have been anticipating and waiting for. From long ago, they've been waiting for this Messiah to come. The genealogy, as we saw last night, the genealogy proves that Christ had the legal right to the throne of David. Now we see the miraculous birth of Christ and we see the divine origin of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see... Later on in chapter 2, the honor of the king as the magi come and give gifts to him, the protection of the king as, uh, as God directs uh, Joseph and Mary and the child out of Bethlehem to be protected from Herod, the confirmation of the king when he is baptized, the testing of the king, and on goes Matthew's account to prove above all else Jesus is the king. By the way, when Origen was defending against Celsus, the virgin birth of Christ, here is his argument. His argument was simply this. Jesus is the Son of God in flesh. That was his argument. And that is really the argument of Matthew right here. He just simply declares it. He simply declares what was and what is and then calls his audience to believe. Now, as I said, again, Matthew's defending. His first defense was the legal line, the legal proof that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had the right to the throne, and we saw that from the genealogy from verses 2 through 17. Now we see here that Jesus is the Messiah because he was conceived by God. He had a supernatural origin on earth. And I add that little phrase at the end, on earth. It had a supernatural origin on earth because he has eternally existed. But he entered into this world through the virgin. And that's what is unfolded here. This is, again, a remarkable account because it records for us how God began his earthly work. This is the focal point of redemptive history here at this point because it is the start of Christ's earthly ministry. This moment, as the, you know, the Son of God enters into the world, at this moment begins the, the redemptive work of Christ. 
So all the years of sacrifices, all the years of suffering under ungodly kings, all the years of punishment and deportation, all of the silent years have all been heading up to this point in time. And now, in this moment, here comes the Son of God. Matthew unfolds it. So what Matthew demonstrates from verse 18 through 25 is this. He gives us three divine works that strengthen Jesus' right to be the Messiah, the chosen one of God. Three works, three proofs that's evidence that Jesus has the right and is the Messiah, the chosen one of God. The first is the divine origin of Jesus Christ. Notice the divine origin of Jesus Christ in verse 18. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. This is the first point, the divine origin of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just notice the brevity by which Matthew states it. A lot of questions there. Just She was found to be with child when she was in a particular state. There are only two of the Gospels recount the virgin birth of Christ. That is Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel gives the defense of the birth of Christ from Joseph's perspective. Luke's Gospel gives the birth of Christ from Mary's perspective. And Matthew recounts here that this time, this is when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Verse 18. They were married. They were betrothed. But it is important to understand the particular Jewish custom at this point because the Jewish marriage had three stages. In fact, I might introduce some of these stages in my own family if we keep this up. Getting to that point, as my kids are getting older, they might actually introduce some of these things. The first was an arrangement period. There was a time of arrangement where you had taken your child and you arranged with another family a pairing up. Parents would get together and they would begin to plan this. The parents would begin to lay out the details. And the children at this stage would be quite young. Typically, a a female would be about the age of 13 or a little older, and a male would be about the age of 18. This is a time of arrangement. At that time of arrangement, there would be an agreement between two families that this wedding was going to happen. They would be evaluating certainly many things. This would be the time in which you would recognize, all right, the child is going to be married, but there are some things that still need to take place in that child. Some ways that they need to grow up, ways they need to mature. But indeed, they were beginning to recognize this was going to happen. Second stage, they would move then to the betrothal stage. This was a legally binding contract at this stage where the two were joined together legally. They were, had witnesses which affirmed their joint, they were joined. They were legally married, but they were not yet consummating that marriage. This marriage time once they were joined in this legal betrothal period that would last probably no longer than a year gave them time to prepare for actually being married. The groom preparing to receive his new bride, would be setting up his house, he would be ordering events, he would probably be working, he would be doing things in which was necessary to prepare for the family. Again, there would be witnesses to this event so as to make it legal 
It was a legal joining of the two, but it was not yet a physical relationship was not yet there. And then the last stage of this marriage would be then the physical ceremony, the joining of the two, the consummation of the marriage, the actual performance with all the friends and family. So these were the three stages of a Jewish wedding of which when they were in the betrothal period, they were legally bound but yet not physically joined together yet. And this is the period of time in which Jesus was entered into the world. That's what Matthew says there again. The birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. These two young people, two young Jewish youths coming from prestigious families, religious families, had been joined together as their families had determined that they should be brought together in a period in which they legally committed to each other, and yet they were waiting for that final stage. This is significant to recognize and important because in God's sovereignty, He is protecting the particular details that know, that uh, would affirm that Jesus had the right to take of the throne because he came through, again, Joseph's legal line. Now notice, verse 18, where Matthew puts the emphasis here. The end of verse 18, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. This was the Spirit's work. You jump down to verse 20, at the end of verse 20. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Matthew affirms the detail. The angel affirms the detail to Joseph. This is a child conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. How? The Holy Spirit, God, who created life, gave conception. Literally, the text reads in verse 20, For the one having been begotten in her is from the Holy Spirit. The one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This is God's announcement. It is direct. Again, when looking at Matthew's account, I would think, if I'm Joseph, my mind is flooded with a lot of questions. How in the world is that possible? When did this occur? I mean, how can the immaterial become material? What's happening here? None of those questions are asked in the text or even answered in the text, and yet it's just plainly stated by Matthew. This is what has taken place, and it is by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit worked supernaturally, conceiving Christ in the womb of Mary, providing the necessary male DNA to conceive, and then the woman's body naturally taking over and carrying out its functions to bring forth a child. And again, it is unique in this period of time in which which Joseph was married to Mary legally and yet had not come to her physically that this is the time in which the Messiah entered into the world. It's important. I mean, if this happened today in our context, under uh, our practices for marriage, we would say something like, well, that's a honeymoon baby. 
Clearly looking at the details, uh, they got married and uh, now a child's there. This has to be of the honeymoon time. But in this period of time where you have a betrothal period that would last over a year's time frame, you would recognize this is, again, a unique, sovereignly controlled circumstance of human tradition where God was preparing the way in which the Messiah would enter into the world. It's critical that Jesus himself would have his father's uh, legal right to the throne. Critical because he needed to have that right to sit on that throne and it came through his father. Well, what's interesting, while he has the legal right to the throne, he cannot have the bloodline of his father. And this leads us to point number two the divine protection of Jesus' kingship. The divine protection of Jesus' kingship. Yes, he is the legal heir to the throne of David because his father, Joseph, is a legal heir to David, a legal heir to Abraham, and therefore Jesus himself is a legal heir to that throne. But there's a problem with Joseph's bloodline. There's a problem with Joseph that we have to unfold here. Notice back in verse 11 and 12, there is a name in there. It says in verse 11 and 12, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. The name that is of concern for us is that of Jeconiah. Jeconiah was a man cursed by God. Let me just show you this. If you want to turn over to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 28 through 30. This detail comes out in Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah 22, verses 28 through 30. Says this, is this man Coniah a despised shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless a man who will not prosper in his days. For notice, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Well, that's a problem. Because you have a prophecy given by God that says of Jeconiah here, none of your descendants are going to sit on the throne. None of your children or your children's children, none will sit on the throne. Yet, if you again turn back to Matthew's account, you see in Matthew's account there, verse 11 and 12, there is that name, Jeconiah. In Joseph's lineage, You have a man who has been cursed by 
God. It is said because of his own rebellion, because of his own rejection of God, because of his own turning of way and obstinance to the things of God, because of his own corruption, he was cursed and he didn't have the right. Anyone from his bloodline didn't have a right to sit on the throne. Yet he was in the line of David, yet he was in the line of Abraham, yet he is also in the line of the Messiah. How do you get around that? The answer is, in comes the virgin birth. Jesus isn't of the blood line of Jeconiah. He's of the legal line of Jeconiah. This is the first defense that of the divine protection of God. Because when you read through Mary, read through Matthew, or Luke's gospel, and you read through the, the genealogy in Luke's gospel, you recognize Jeconiah is not in the bloodline of Jesus Christ through Mary's line. This is the legal line. And in the legal line, it is through Jeconiah that Jesus has the right, the legal right, to sit on the throne. But the curse is still upheld. Jeconiah's bloodline, Jeconiah's descendants, his physical descendants still will not sit on the throne. And yet his legal right to the throne was upheld through Joseph. And that is how the Messiah was able to enter onto the throne and to take of David's throne. This is, again, divine protection so that Jesus Christ is protected from that curse of, upon Jeconiah and yet he is given the right to take of the throne. One more detail I would emphasize in that would to be pointing out this is that this is God's divine protection of his son, Notice there's a second detail, a second way in which God protects the son here. And notice it says that he preserved the marriage of Joseph and Mary supernaturally. Notice verses 19 and through 21 says this, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This is uh, the second aspect of God's protection. He protected him from the curse that was on Jeconiah's line, but now he protects Mary and her integrity by interceding through an angel who came to Joseph and gave him insight into what was taking place. I mean, at this point in time, again, if Joseph had divorced her and sent her away, it would have again destroyed the legal rights of Christ to the throne. So God was interceding, protecting and again, this would be very natural. We would expect these details. Verse 19, Joseph, again, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away. He was in his own heart. He was uh, confused by the details. He was overwhelmed, as you would expect. I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, if your significant other came to you and said, you know, I'm with child and it was by the Holy Spirit, I'm pretty sure you're not at believing it. I know I wouldn't be kind of hard to to believe that detail especially since 
again, you know how the birds and the bees work, and you're thinking, no, this doesn't seem right. In this case, Joseph, being again the righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, demonstrating his righteousness. He didn't want to shame her. He didn't want to expose her, but he certainly had a hard time believing what was taking place. And that's when, again, an angel, verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. God sent an angel to minister to Joseph to take all those real burdens, all that real anticipation, all that doubt, all of the burden that he was experiencing to be real doubt and to direct it and to in directing it to give clarity as to what was taking place. Do not be afraid to take her as your wife, Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Again, affirming that you don't need to be doubting, don't need to be filled with fear, you don't have to be filled with mistrust, you don't have to be filled with unbelief, because this is of God. I mean, I would think at this moment, again, what I love about Matthew's account is that he reveals the very natural and normal emotions that would be experienced in that moment. I mean, if we're going to write a story and make something up, we would, we would present it in very glowing terms, as if Joseph always believed that his, his wife was true to him and had no doubts whatsoever that this was going to, this was anything but of God. That's not how, again, Matthew records it. He records the very human emotions and experiences. This was Joseph doubting, but still wanting to do the right thing, struggling in his own heart of figuring out how to do the right thing in this moment and still bring honor to Mary, even though she hurt him and or appeared to hurt him in a significant way. And God jumps in. He preserves and protects that marriage just as he preserved and protected the line of Jesus Christ to David, that legal right to the throne. Now this leads us to the third point and the last, and it is the divine proclamation of redemption. The divine proclamation of redemption from verse 21 through 25. Here's what Matthew records, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and she called his name, and he called his name Jesus. The divine proclamation here that was announced by the angel saying here that this glorious purpose for which he has come He has come for this purpose that he will save, verse 21, save his people from their sins. This is why Jesus has come. Again, the name 
Jesus is a form of the Hebrew word Joshua, Yeshua. And Yeshua means Jehovah will save. And the supernatural work of Jesus entering into the world is the demonstration that God will save. Jehovah will save. He will come and rescue his people. The angel didn't explain how that was going to happen. He just simply explains why he entered into this world. He has come to save his people. And he announced first, the angel announces who this baby is, that his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, and he's going to save his people. Secondly, Matthew adds the quote from the Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, into the mix. That he was going to enter in fulfilling this prophecy in verse 23, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, that Jesus was going to be born of a virgin. Now, it's rather interesting historically that this has been debated. Isaiah 7, 14, where that that whole um, sign there, because the word virgin is ima, which could be translated as virgin or a young woman of marriable age. So that it's a uh, it could go either way. Is it meaning virgin or does it mean a young woman of marriable age? Modern scholars today have argued. Well, actually, the person being referred to in Isaiah seven fourteen is Isaiah's wife, because in chapter eight she conceives and gives birth to a child, and that is the fulfillment of the prophecy. The argument proves is that Jesus, that Isaiah wasn't actually giving a defense to a virgin, but actually just giving the sign that a woman was going to bear a child. Well, first of all, Matthew here points to this to say in verse 23, this text, Isaiah 7.14, the prophecy must refer to a virgin. That's how he quotes it. Let me give you a couple more proofs to defend why this reference, Isaiah 7.14, the virgin shall be with child, means an actual virgin, not just a young woman, a young woman of marriable age. And the first proof would be this, the translation of the Septuagint. He's like, what in the world is that? It's too early on Christmas to figure out that. What is uh, The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Septuagint was translated by secular scholars. They translated the Old Testament text into the Greek language. The Greek language was the dominant language of the day. And to read the the text, you want a translation that you would understand. So they translated Septuagint. The question is this. What did the Septuagint, how did the Septuagint translate this text? And the answer was they translated it as virgin. Secular scholars translating the text viewed the text as teaching that Isaiah 7.14 was in reference to a virgin who would bear a child. Second, was early Jewish commentators. There's a Jewish rabbi by the name of Rashi, and he wrote on this passage, Isaiah 7.14, he says this, Behold, the Amma shall conceive and have a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, means that our Creator shall be with us. And this is the sign. The one who will conceive is a girl who never in her life has had intercourse with any man. This is a Jewish rabbi who has no axe to grind, certainly for the Christian faith. 
affirming the significance of this very term. This is a virgin who was to enter into, who is going to conceive and bring in the Son of God. This is what Matthew defends here. Not only is Jesus, again, the one who is going to come and save his people from their sins, but he is also one who is going to enter into this world through the virgin And they're going to call his name Emmanuel, which translated means, verse 23, God with us. So back to the first question that I brought out when we started all of this. Is the virgin birth important? And the answer is emphatically yes. Emphatically. To give up the virgin birth is give up all of your Christianity as well. Because if he wasn't born of a virgin, then... He has no legal right to the throne of David. He, has, he is not the Messiah. He is not the Savior. He is not the one who is going to come and redeem. He hasn't fulfilled prophecy. To give up the virgin birth then is, to get, is to give up all that God had promised from long ago. And Jesus Christ, if he is not born of the Virgin Mary, is a fraud. Is The virgin birth, necessary? Absolutely necessary. And as Matthew is unfolding here, it's necessary because it preserves the legal right of Christ to the throne. It is necessary because God himself proclaimed it and said that's what took place. Otherwise, it would be making God himself a liar and God sending angels to lie on his behalf. And it was God's testimony that kept their marriage together. And it's, of course, necessary because this fulfilled what God had declared long ago through the prophet Isaiah. Now, why is all this important? If we just wrap up for us, thinking about the various lessons. Here's why all of this is important for us. Because when, when skeptics are running around denying the significance of the virgin birth, denying its importance, it are these, it are, it's these details, these prophecies, these promises, God's preservation and protecting his work that demonstrate that this work is of God and not of man. For man cannot accomplish these very things. God and God alone accomplishes these things. And that our faith, it also demonstrates for us this, that our faith is not resting upon fairy tales. It's not resting upon, again, stories of Santa Claus. It's not resting upon some kind of fabricated events. It's anchored in historical reality, historical truth that can stand up against the test of time, that can be evaluated in court and seen to be true, that the details of which stand up against all scrutiny. And even when man is naturally hostile, Naturally doubting, naturally even as Joseph wondering, God is preserving by his own testimony what is taking place. God didn't have to tell us through the prophet Isaiah how Jesus would enter into the world. God certainly didn't owe it to Joseph to come to Joseph and tell him what was taking place. But he jumped in and he gave these details to affirm his work and to comfort our hearts so that our faith is anchored in truth. And so when we come and I think about Christmas, 
And I think about this particular season and the things that we reflect on and we sing about and we rejoice in and we teach our children and we are comforted in our own hearts. We're reminded of this, that every one of those details is like an anchor to our faith to give us a firm foundation. We're not tossed here and there. We're not standing up and believing on something that is no different than Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. No, we are standing on truths that are eternally essential, the very foundation of our redemption and the basis of our hope. So my encouragement to you, this, or if we were to take away four lessons of the virgin birth, this would be the lessons. First lesson would be this, that the doctrine of the virgin birth reminds us that our salvation is a supernatural event. Our salvation is a supernatural event. God supernaturally entered in this world, supernaturally preserved the the legal and physical right of the Son to the throne of David, supernaturally protected all of those details so it could take place. It just says He does a supernatural work within us to redeem us. Our salvation is supernatural activity. Starting from our Savior and working out in us. The second truth we remember is this from the virgin birth. The virgin birth is a reminder that salvation is entirely a gift of God's grace. Man couldn't orchestrate it. Man couldn't manipulate it. Man, again, was, had no power to bring this about. This is entirely an expression of the grace of God lavished upon us. We are simply the recipients of the marvelous grace of God. The third truth that we would reflect from this is this, the virgin birth evidences the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. There is no man like him in all of history. No man like him, no one like the Lord Jesus Christ who is eternally the Son of God who entered into this world, became one of us. And then fourthly, virgin birth once again establishes God's authority and sovereignty over nature. Even over the the natural creation does not restrain him. Nothing is impossible for God. He can accomplish all good things. No one can resist him or hold back his authority. He has the authority to accomplish all good things. So that Christian, my hope is, when we come to Christmas season, we spend time reflecting with our families And we spend time recounting the stories and remembering the events of Christ's coming and the Magi coming and worshiping him and his entrance into the world. That it isn't, again, another fairy tale like Santa Claus or something else, but it is the certainty of these truths comfort our heart and strengthen our faith. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the riches of your work. Thank you for the ways in which you move and direct among your people where you accomplish your good purposes. Thank you for the, the measure of testimony that you've given to your work. That from long ago, prophet after prophet, you declared what would take place so that when it took place, there would be absolute certainty and clarity. So there would be no doubt within an within our own hearts as to what was taking place, that you are accomplishing your good purposes, and that you are demonstrating your power, your sovereignty, your control. 
that even that sovereign power over customs and traditions like a Jewish marriage ceremony, you demonstrate the riches of your work, let alone the supernatural power to conceive a child and a virgin. And all of this, we are overwhelmed when our petty difficulties come up and we lose faith and we doubt doubting your work and your purposes. May we be reminded of your rich power as we look upon the conception and birth of Christ and we recognize our problems are so small in comparison. So that may we always trust in your marvelous work as you're directing, knowing that you will accomplish all your good purposes and the fact that we're called to be a part of it. Whether that is to be servants of your work or proclaimers of it, we are called to be a part in which you will bring glory to yourself. And so when we go away this afternoon to be together with family, may we be encouraging one another's faith, lifting up the truth, building up one another around the truth so that everyone would have confidence of your marvelous accomplishments. Direct us this morning for your name's sake we ask. Amen.